0: Speaking of racism, what is white supremacy? When I say those words, what do you think of? Does it conjure images of angry people holding signs and tiki torches, screaming at others? Or perhaps it makes you think of Klan members or neo-Nazis. Either way, these are people and a movement that you have absolutely no association with, no connection to at all whatsoever. Or do you? I'm joined by my friend Calvin Moore from Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, and we are going to talk about this very concept of white supremacy and how we as a nation are connected to this. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know, featuring Jay Lang. All right, I'm welcoming Calvin Moore to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me here. Hey, no problem. Yeah, we're recording in my house. Right? This This is is the first time I've been face-to-face with somebody, so I'm excited about that because we just always record over the phone. So I was talking to you the other day about the definition of white supremacy. So right now we see this term thrown around a lot in like the upper, I would say, I'd say there are different tiers to people who are speaking on anti-racism stuff, right? And by and large, it seems the academic tiers use the term white supremacy a lot, as much as they would use the word racism. And I think that freaks a lot of people out. So I kind of wanted to talk about how do we break this down and how do we address the definition of white supremacy so that people, can really understand what we're talking about and just how absolutely essential it is to use the word But I feel like before we really start using it a lot, we need to define it. Define
1: it, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just say this on on the front end. When it comes to talking about white supremacy, I don't think that anybody doesn't know what it is.
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think everybody intrinsically knows what white supremacy is. When you say it, everybody knows what you're talking about. Everybody's on the same page. But I think there's a vested interest on the part of certain people for whom they don't want to deal with it. And so then we get bogged down in things like, oh, well, you know, know, what is it really? Does it even exist? Is it a real thing? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know why it's really complicated we can never get down to really distill what it truly is like as yes, you can. Mm-hmm. As <laughs> yes, you can. White supremacy is simply the idea that white people are superior to black people and you can use any num it's over the years any number of ways have been used to show that white people are superior to black people mm-hmm. whether it was pseudoscience pre-Darwinian evolution to actual science uh, being twisted uh, post Darwinian evolution, uh, especially religious thinking, uh, was used to uh, to support white supremacist thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at the words of many people down through history, such as uh, Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy. We can get to that a little bit later on yeah. in the show, uh, directly stating that white people are superior to black people from the Senate floor. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, president of the United States at one point, talking about getting White people to think that the lowest of the white person think that they're better than the highest of black people. Uh, just all these things play into this idea of this simple idea that or belief that white people are in every conceivable way superior to black people. Right. Or anybody that's not white. Doesn't even even have to be black. We're just talking about black and white in terms of American history because we have the problematic history of slavery here. Right. So.
0: so what I'm thinking of though is in terms of bridging the gap like for the average white person who isn't in academia, who mm-hmm. isn't digging into this, who has basically been taught history in their public schooling education (laughs) and not much beyond that. When they hear the term white supremacy, a lot of times they get this picture of, you know, like the KKK and neo-Nazis and they think, well, that's not me. And so I don't actually have to enter into this discussion. And what I want to do is I want to connect the dots for them so that they don't feel so, so that they don't feel such ease at just releasing themselves from the term white supremacy. (laughs) What does it mean to be a nation that is built on white supremacy?
1: Well, I would say that a nation built on white supremacy has, I guess a way to put this easily, if you're talking about people who are not in academia, it has created a system that was intentionally made invisible for the people whom it gives an advantage to in, yeah. our, in our culture. And I say advantage because I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, white privilege you know, white privilege is a terrible term. I don't like that. You know, my dad worked hard for everything he got, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that you're, that your father didn't get up every single morning, you know, put his clothes on put his shoes on, was gone before you woke up, came home well after you were done with school and went to bed It washed, rin- rinse, repeat, and made sure that you had everything that you needed to get through life, right? Mm-hmm. In that sense, it doesn't seem like your parents had any privilege whatsoever, right? In right? that way, your parents are just like my parents. My dad did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think that when we're talking about advantages, we're talking about going to school and not worrying that your, your history textbook, that uh, the last president chronicled in your history textbook is not Kennedy, Mm -hmm. right you don't think about that right you don't think about uh do i not drive through we're we're in michigan right now recording this i don't like to drive through cities like ferndale michigan Mm -hmm. right because you can get a dwb and we can joke about this on television and dave chappelle can make great jokes about it um but i don't like getting a driving while black i've been pulled over more times just because i'm black than for me actually breaking any speeding laws and the funny thing is i do speed a lot
0: right i do too that's not
1: why i've been pulled over Uh um but uh things like that uh Looking at mass incarceration in America, just the in, in, the inordinate amount of people of color who are in prison, given the the way the population works out, why is it, are are there so many more people who are black and Hispanic in prison than their white mm-hmm. counterparts? Uh, not that anybody should want to go to jail. I don't need to have those numbers evened out or anything. But
0: right. well, and I think it's know. important to note counterparts. You used the term counterpart mm-hmm. because for some listening, they may think, "Well, don't commit crime." Right. Don't commit but crime. The reality jail. is right. the statistics are based on counterparts. So these are per- white people who commit the same crimes.
1: Uh, you can talk about the difference between uh, neighborhoods being patrolled yeah. uh, and neighborhoods being policed. Those are different things. Mm. right? So if you grow up in a, a gross point, Michigan, uh, you're going to have your neighborhood patrolled and you're going to feel very safe because the cops are making the rounds through your neighborhood and it's just quiet. And you, your quiet sleepy town doesn't have a lot of crime. It's great. The most that you're going to deal with is white collar crime, maybe some domestic violence calls. Right? Mm-hmm. Those are terrible in and of themselves, but you're not really dealing with lots of break-ins or things like that. So you've got those kinds of things and then you have neighborhoods that are policed. right? And when you're talking about neighborhoods that are policed, you're talking about police getting out of their cars, harassing people who are doing things like playing basketball in the streets. You're talking about broken windows policing. You're talking about stop and frisk. These are the kinds of things that I think people don't realize are happening before anyone even commits a crime. No crime has ever been, no no crime has been committed, but the assumption of black criminality plays into how law enforcement acts in neighborhoods where the people are predominantly of color versus uh, neighborhoods where they are predominantly white, suburban, upper class, upper middle class uh, and, and upper class. So those kinds of things, disparity in um, uh, in terms of, I mean, you can look at, uh, what are we looking at right now? The the scandal that just broke at the time we're, we're recording, the scandal that just broke with uh, the college admissions, you know, right. college admissions where yeah. you've got uh, uh, famous people getting their kids in into school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have moms who are, you know, black, who were sent to prison because they used somebody else's address to get their kid into a better elementary school, better middle school, right. uh, that kind of disparity, uh, in terms of whether you can wear your hair natural to right. work, right? Uh, just the way that a black woman's hair grows is seen as an affront to proper business attire. Mm-hmm. proper business presentation in the corporate workspace. Whereas you can have a lot of corporate workspaces where women are allowed, you know, white women, their counterparts are allowed to dye their hair all sorts of strange and crazy colors, have all sorts of weird styles and come back from vacation with cornrows in their hair and everything's fine. Right. Uh, but when a black woman does something just natural, just lets her hair grow into an Afro, it is said to be unprofessional. These kinds of things, I think, are what people miss about white supremacy. So mm-hmm. white supremacy assumes that the way that white people want things, the way that white people expect things to be are the way that things ought to be and everyone else should get in line. And anybody else that does anything different is an aberration mm-hmm. from the system, a system that white people tend to see as perfect and in no need of change. Or if it needs any kind of change, it's a small tweak and it was not. It was nothing intentional.
0: Right. And that and I think that brings us to history and the absolute importance of understanding history. But how do you bridge that gap as well? Because your average individual may not be a history nerd or interested in that and they're not learning it in the school system.
1: Right. Um, I am a historian by trade. Uh, so I went to school for for history, general degree in history, but my focus uh, was actually the African-American experience in the early American Republic. So anything from the beginning of the nation up to and including the Civil War, if it has to do with black people, I pretty much know about it. Okay. I can teach about stuff beyond that, but mm-hmm. that's just kind of my jam, right? Um, and I find, one, that when it comes to introducing to people history that is unknown to them and uncomfortable for them, it can create a sort of cognitive dissonance, right? Uh, Case in point, I grew up solidly evangelical, solidly conservative. And when I found out and started reading about uh, feminism and rape culture, things that that women go through. I would be told things like, oh, you know, women get catcalled all the time. They get body shamed. They, you know, hey, smile more. You know, if you showed a little bit more cleavage, you could get a little head in life. Or if you do get a head in life, it's assumed that it's because you did something sexual in the first right. place. So I remember when I was first confronted with this reality that women go through. And my thought was, well, I don't do any of that. Mm. I was raised better than that. My father raised a gentleman. Right. And my father did raise a gentleman. And I saw the way that he treated my mother. And that was the example that I had. Mm-hmm. And my brothers had that same example. And my sister knew what to expect from a man. Right. Right. Uh, proper treatment. So we never saw someone treat women Terribly, and so when I met women who were like, "Oh my God, this happens all the time," I was like, "I didn't believe it, right?" And then I saw that video of the woman walking down the street in in, yes, uh, in New York yes. for for however long it was, right? And she is getting catcalled, and all of a sudden, I had to go, "Whoa, okay, so this does happen." It wasn't just that one street; she walked down a lot of a lot of streets, right? And this was just happening. She didn't say anything, and she wasn't dressed in anything crazy or or anything like that. And so I had to do some internal work to reconfigure how I was thinking about this. So even though I wasn't a person who did these kinds of things, by not believing women when they told me this, when my initial thought was suspicion, I was feeding right back into rape culture. Right. Right. So there was was this kind of work that I had to do. Same thing goes for when you're introducing to people history that is unknown and is uncomfortable. And I, I think because... People have been sold this story uh, that they're the hero. They're the hero of the story. America is the greatest nation on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. European Western ideals, right? All these all these great things. And when you throw something into that system that causes it to tilt, yeah. you, you don't know what to do with it. And, and I get it. People have been raised on lies that were created for the express purpose of nation building. This is something that all historians understand. There is a reason why there is a story about George Washington saying, "Father, I cannot tell a lie. It was me who chopped down the cherry tree." That never happened. Right. That story is is completely made up. Mm-hmm. But when you had a new nation being born and people were like, oh, "I don't know if it's going to work, America. Seems like a decent experiment, but I don't know. Are we going to make it or not?" And, "Hey, this this guy is going to be our first president. Is he trustworthy? Is he someone we can follow?" They tell this convenient lie about about, hey, look how good George Washington is. Right. George Washington was not the amazing person that people make him out to be. He was great, but he wasn't as great as people make him out to be. But America needed that. So when you introduce this idea that, hey, maybe he wasn't so great because he owned people, you know, I was like, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. This is the father of our nation. Mm-hmm. What are you saying? Hey, did you know that Thomas Jefferson, who wrote most of uh, was it the Constitution Declaration, but one of the two major documents, I'm sorry. Um, Hey, it's so great. Yeah, he owned a lot of slaves and then also was out in the barn having sex with, you know, Sally Hemings at the right. same time. It's like, wow, that's inconvenient. That, that messes with our stories. Right. And so I think when you introduce to people, hey, these are the things that happened historically, you have to do some work beforehand. Mm-hmm. And what I like to tell people as a historian is history is ugly yeah all of our history is ugly and we've been taught that it's not and so there are good guys and bad guys and there are good guys who are bad guys and there are bad guys who are good guys and we have to determine after the fact what to do with that reality Mm -hmm. and so when you introduce these unknown stories and you say hey here's the here's the other side of things here are the guys who built our nation they're great right right we if not for them we wouldn't have all that we have and that's true it is but at what cost Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So here are the people on the other side who were exploited and here are their words. What do you what do you do with that?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I also try to connect I what I try to do. And we'll get into some specifics here, but I also try to connect it to today. Things that we don't like to, to discuss. Um, for instance, in front of me right now, I have a MacBook Pro. Right. And I have an iPhone and I love my Apple Music. I have my iPad. But I fully know that all of these items are. Are made in sweatshops in China. Yeah, I am one hundred percent aware of that. Right, mm-hmm. it's something I don't like to think about all the time. Right. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna watch my Netflix. I'm gonna watch my Hulu. Yeah. I'm gonna go go karting and do what I can to entertain myself to death so I don't have to deal with the reality of what's going on around mm-hmm. me. It's the same thing. Is people back then bifurcated just like we bifurcate today. We split ourselves into two, three, four, multiple things to not deal with reality as it is. In reality and history is not convenient and it's not pretty. It's very uncomfortable, but it's never personal.
0: Hmm. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, I think if you say, oh, man. Yeah, if someone says, Hey, I love Thomas Jefferson. He did this, that, and the other. He was great. Okay, fine, cool. Um, and I say, Yeah, but, but he did all these terrible things over here. People take it personally. Like you just said, you did all those terrible things. Like, no, you didn't do those things because slavery happened. I'm not saying that you did those things, but I am saying that people in the past wanted to create a better future for their offspring. Just like today, you want to create a better future for your offspring. The problem is they held some pretty crappy ideas about the people that weren't their children
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the people that didn't look like them. So they set up a system so that their children and people that look like their children would have advantages in the future. And that system is still very much in play today. Have we made progress? Absolutely. We have made progress.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think people get lulled into this sense of we've arrived when we say we've made progress. So today, you know, Barack Obama was president at one point, right? You know, we're we're now we now have Trump as president. But yeah, Barack Obama, people, oh, we have arrived. We have arrived. Hey Calvin, it's not like it was in the 70s. It's not like it was in the 70s, Calvin. It's true. It's not like it was in the 70s. But you know what the people in the 70s heard? Hey, It's not like it was in the fifties, right? Hey, man, it's not like it was in the twenties. We always have this myth of progress. Oh, it's we've arrived at where you know at the at the pinnacle of of human civilization. Racism Mm -hmm. is over. We no longer need to think about those things. White supremacy is a thing of the past. Never it doesn't exist anymore. But it does. Mm -hmm. It does. And I think that we need to look back. To understand where we are now and why things are the way that they are, and I've rambled a lot. I'm sorry. I'll take it you to your next question.
0: No, I but, love this. Uh, I'm less of a question asker okay. sometimes, <laughs> and more of a like. You're the expert on the show. Take it away. We'll just let it happen organically. Yeah. here. So
1: I guess what's interesting about conversations about white supremacy. So I, I have my own show. It's it's called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, and we did a we did a four week series called Why Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. uh, and we talked about Black Faith because that seems to be very prevalent in the black community is is the church. Um, and you had uh, black economics, you had black family, and there was, uh, I think, black culture. Was, okay. I think those were the four. And when I did those four episodes, and I've got uh, two co-hosts uh, who help with the show. It's, it's, so it's a roundtable discussion where we have people of different perspectives come on and, and sit and talk with each other. Uh, and this series is a little bit different than that because we, we only allowed black people on that panel. Black people are not monolithic by any means, sure. but there was enough commonality mm-hmm. that we did it that way. And, I remember getting pushback from people who listened to the show and people even here at the studio who said, "Oh, you know, well, well how come you you're not doing an episode, you know, a, a series on white people, right? Kind of the the classic, you know, well how come there's not a white people network? You know, you got BET, but how can you not have a white people network?" And rather than push back, I said, "Okay, fine, fine. We'll do it. We'll do we'll do a, a three-week series called Being White." And I brought in um over those next 3 weeks, we brought in four to six different white people who sat on our panels and talked about uh white culture and white history and uh, white privilege, and it was fascinating to hear the perspectives Mm -hmm. that they had. Now, I walked away disagreeing with probably 90% of what I heard. But by that same token, I didn't walk away thinking, you're an idiot. Mm Mm-hmm and i think a lot of people do that you get into conversations about race or you get into conversations about sexuality or politics or abortion or whatever it is mm-hmm. and the other person on the other side of the conversation is an idiot and you're you're the smart person right um we walked away disagreeing agreeing to disagree but at least i said now i don't think you're an idiot and there was there was some mutual respect there um but we did that series called being white and it was it was interesting to see the um the mental calisthenics that was done mm-hmm. to Escape any kind of. I don't want to use the word culpability because culpability would assume guilt, personal guilt. Responsibility, responsibility is probably yeah. responsibility is a little bit better word. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what you're doing. You know what can I what can I do to to truly be an ally? Okay, mm-hmm. and so here's your show, right? Right. Uh, now people are coming on and, and speaking on your show, and I, I think that's that's great. But I think the easy way out is taking it personally.
0: Mm, that is a really good point. Right.
1: And I had, um, when I was in college, I took a class called African Philosophy and the African American Experience. And there was a friend of mine and her name was Adrian. Mm-hmm. She and I hung in the same circles uh, I was a president of our diversity committee she was the secretary of the diversity committee and so anything that came up with diversity in school curriculum we we wanted to do together and so she took this class and I remember she she approached one of the professors his name was JC Thomas he had written the um, he had written the handbook on diversity for the United States Army was now teaching at our school and I remember she came up to him after there had been a huge explosion uh, in the class of emotion and she came up to him and she said I don't know what to do I I feel really bad. I just feel really bad. And he said, I don't want you to feel bad. I want you to be aware and do something. And I think a lot of people get into this mode of feeling bad. Right. Which honestly, if anybody pays attention long enough to these kind of conversations, feeling bad is a way out of dealing with the reality of the situation. Yeah. I feel bad about this. And a lot of people avoid feeling bad. They don't yeah. want to feel bad. You made me feel bad. So it's self-protection. I, yeah, it's self-protection, self-preservation. Yeah. I don't like mm-hmm. to feel bad. I want to, be, I want to be, be comfortable. And this is not a comfortable thing. Mm-hmm. And by making it personal, the issue continues, right? So when I'm talking about history, I say this is not personal. You... Jimmy, you, Kelly, you, Chad, you didn't. I I picked the whitest names I could. You Uh, did a
2: good
1: job. (laughs) (laughs) Trevor. uh, No. uh, But no, you did not do these things. Mm -hmm. You did not go down to the market and feel the body of a black person and make a purchase of their body to work on your plantation. Mm-hmm. right um you did not arrive at a location where black people were protesting with fire hoses and police dogs and use them right. and and of, you, you did not do that now if you look at charlottesville there are some people who do that <laughs> <laughs> but most people that you're talking to mm-hmm. have not done those things. And when you bring these things up, they feel as if you were saying that they did those things. Yeah. Right. So letting them know one, that history is not personal, but it happened. And because it happened, we need to deal with the ramifications of that. A lot of people will say to me, you know, just history. History's so boring. But a lot of people will say, well, you know, why are we letting the past define us? And that was so long ago. Right. Well, hold on. Hold on a second. You and I just had. A sixty to one hundred comment debate on Facebook mm-hmm. about the Second Amendment. Right? So we're talking about like what, a two hundred and thirty four year old document here, right? That we're <laughs> that we're allowing to uh to run our lives, right? You know, yes. the, the Constitution. And let's be honest. So I think both of us grew up evangelical. So you can go back even further than that. So you're telling me that you want to leave the past in the past, get over, get over slavery. was so long ago, but you're going to defend your Second Amendment rights that are, you know, over 200 years old now. And you're also going to worship a dude from 2,000 years ago whose story began 6,000 years ago. And you want to tell me that the past doesn't matter. Right. We just need to get over it. My mother remembers separate but equal. Yes. Right. She remembers drinking from separate water fountains. Now, I am glad that my niece is growing up in a world where she has no concept of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, She will, as she gets older and she becomes more informed, but she doesn't have to experience that in the same way that it was just so stark, right? Hey, coloreds only and and four whites only. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matter of fact, she saw a picture one time. Uh, my niece, she was six or seven at the time. It was so cute. But she saw a picture saying whites only and blacks only over two separate water fountains. And her thought was, Uncle Calvin, black people got their own water fountain. <laughs> right? <laughs> She 's in elementary school, and she 's just thinking this is efficient, right <laughs> The line is a lot shorter because <laughs> there are three black kids in my class, right? <laughs> so I get my water quickly, and all the white kids got to stand in line longer right That was like her little innocent thinking, mm-hmm. but um you know all joking aside, my mom remembers you know that world. my mother remembers where she was when uh when you know Malcolm was shot mm-hmm. when when King was shot when Kennedy was shot um people who work towards you know civil rights, you know our leaders being cut down which is okay so again history informs us today so if you wonder why you have a movement like black lives matter with decentralized power right right there's really no power structure we know Mm -hmm. who started it but you can go to different cities and it's decentralized power around the black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. and and why is that because black people were tired of putting someone out front as a target right right so if you're going to keep killing us we're going to decentralize power so you're not going to know who to kill Mm -hmm. right? So we can continue to push for what we want, what we need, uh, what we deserve as Americans in this country, but we're not going to put a target on our back either. That's being informed by history. No one Faults that, that kind of approach at all. So anyway, you have a lot of people who will look at history and go, okay, you know, that's so long ago. Why do we let the, why do we let the past define us? But they'll let the past define us in other ways. But again, it's so that I don't have to deal with this uncomfortable thing that I feel implicated in. Mm -hmm. I'll also say that people can be bad at communicating. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So, so on the one side of I don't like the word white privilege. I've I've gone round and round with people about that. I don't like the word white white privilege. Like, so if I explained to you the exact definition of this thing and chose some other word, you'd be okay. Yes. So you're admitting that white privilege exists, but you don't like it being called white privilege, correct? Okay, fine. I can give up the word white privilege if we're gonna make if we're gonna make some headway, right? Um, but you have a lot of people who will look and say, "Hey, I don't like the way that word is set up because they don't want to deal with it," right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other side of it, you do have you do have people of color who are very very angry and rightfully so. Yeah. Right. A lot of shit has happened to us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it gets old. People not listening. Mm-hmm. It really does get old for people to look at something and you're both seeing the same thing and one person is making an excuse for it and another person is lamenting yeah what what is happening that gets that gets hard after a while and it can lead to miscommunication. So now I am acting out in anger. I look at it this way. Uh, my wife can push my buttons. She she just knows which buttons to push because she's the closest person to me. She knows how to do it. We're good at that. And, and I can blow up mm-hmm. and I don't blow up a lot, but I can blow up. All my feelings are legitimate, mm-hmm. but I'm not using my big boy words, right? <laughs> I'm not that. using my big boy words. <laughs> right? And so- now, you know, my wife's upset. My wife's hurt. She doesn't want to talk about it anymore. Same thing goes for these kinds of conversations. You have people who are righteously angry. Mm-hmm. Their feelings are legitimate. We cannot take that away. But I don't know that uh, while I call an ace and, ace and a spade a spade, I don't know that calling someone a racist outright has ever gotten me too far with that person. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they might be doing the most racist thing ever. And I've had a few people on my show who are like, well, I did this one time. You know, does it make me a racist? And I'm like, yeah, it does. You need to deal with that. It's like, oh, OK, but this is this kind of space. Mm-hmm. But in online keyboard warrior mode, I don't know that calling someone outright a racist, even though they are, has ever gotten me. Anywhere, yeah. So I think that you need to be. There's an old saying: uh, "Wise as serpents, gentle as doves." Mm -hmm. You catch more flies with honey, that kind of deal.
0: I was just having this conversation with somebody,
1: but at at, at the same time, I'm two people when I'm saying this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's the side of me that understands that, and then there is the side of me that says, "No, you are saying some patently false things. I don't have to be nice to you,
0: right?
1: I, I, I don't have to." You know, all all gloves are off. I didn't start off yelling and screaming at you. I started off being cordial, and and now you you gone off the rails. And you, Obama now has a lizard in the back of his head, right? <laughs> uh, so yo, know, show me the birth certificate. Those kinds of things. Or the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Don't get me started on that one. Right. But there there's a side of me that's like, hey, you know what? You catch more flies with honey. And then there's a time where I, I feel like someone's going to catch these digital hands.
0: <laughs> well, let me. So let me ask you a question because yeah. communication is my interest and my. Passion and, you know, kind of what got me started in this dialoguing with people and so on. And so, one of the things that I'm curious about because I'm listening to you and you are a communicator Mm -hmm. and you surround yourself with a variety of people and ideas and you seem to have a very high threshold for what we'll call white nonsense. Yes. It sounds like. Yes, I do. So, and I appreciate that. At the same time, I'm curious, like, what kind of toll does that take on you being in that space?
1: It depends on the day. Mm-hmm. Um I think my wife has to slow me down sometimes. Like I will <laughs> She knows me so well. I'll be in the dining room. I'll just I'll be walking through the dining room on my cell phone in the middle of typing a, a novel-length response to some stupidity on the internet. <laughs> and uh I'll just stop in the middle of the dining room and I will stand there for like 10 minutes just typing out. And she's like, "What are you doing, honey?" And she just knows what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh and like, "Nothing. He's in a uh-huh. debate. Uh, Someone's wrong on the internet, honey. I got to fix this." Uh and it doesn't ever fix it. But uh, my, my threshold, I think, is fairly high because I immersed myself in this muck and mire mm-hmm. uh, when you know when I was going through university and then also i' just been through a lot at this point. Uh, you know, I took my wife to um, now my, my wife is white, and I took my wife to uh, the the Wright Museum, the Charles H. Wright Museum mm-hmm. of African American History in downtown Detroit, which is the second largest African American history Museum in the United States. It was the largest until the Smithsonian. Open theirs, which is five times larger. Just had to go and emasculate us. Um, and you were am- just there. I was just there. So it was am- talk about it's that amazing. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're going to have to make this like five parts. I, don't I know. know. Um, I'm but- excited. <laughs> no, I, um, I was taking her through the museum, and it was her first time through. And I'd been there several times. I'd done some theater productions and things there and mm-hmm. gone on the tour and made sure that I took my niece there and my and my my daughter there over the years. And started dating my wife, she had never been. We went on Martin Luther King Day, which is her busiest day of the year, mm-hmm. and we're walking through their exhibit and their main exhibit and she's just she's just crying. She had never been exposed to to these stories. I mean, I was at her house at her at her mother at her mother's house, my mother-in-law's house a few weeks ago for a dinner for her grandmother's birthday. Mm-hmm. And there were two people there wearing MAGA hats, right? So that's kind of what I'm, what I got in my family now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all got them, but um, and they're actually decent people when I talk to them. Uh, just disagree with them politically, sure. Um, but uh, I took her to this museum, and she's she's crying, and she looked at me, and she said, "Doesn't this make you sad?" And my answer was, "I'm black my whole life, right? I've had a long time to deal with this, right." Yeah. And when the images that you constantly see of yourself, the most the most triumphant images you see of Black people, tend to be still connected to the slave narrative. I grew up watching all one million hours of Roots. Right. Uh, the only reason I didn't have to watch the other side of Alex H- Haley's family is because he died. Right. right. Before he could continue writing about it, my mom made sure that I watched Roots.
2: Mm-hmm. She
1: made sure that we watched Malcolm X, mm-hmm. which you know at the time a three hour movie about a guy I didn't even care about which ended up informing my life later, which is really fascinating. She made sure that we knew where we came from. My mother's a family historian. She does census data. She has crates and crates and crates of, of the history of our family, which is kind of nuts. Wow. Uh, so I've got that and then grew up in black church, mm-hmm. went to school for African-American history. And so I kind of took it upon myself to do the emotional labor. And, and the reason why I did that is because... There's a lot of ignorant people out there, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of ignorant people who want to remain ignorant. Yeah, But most of the people that I deal with, most people that I talk to face to face have a vested interest in not remaining ignorant. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you're doing face to face stuff like what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. where you can see body language, where you can see the pain in someone's eyes, where um you can hear, you know, different kinds of sighs and things like that. So you can you can tell somebody's been through something or they, they hold this view because of something that happened to them or something that they were taught. Hey, if I take down this idea that you believe, that's going to change your view of your dad right. or your mom. And then right. it is personal. Right? right. So I find that people who have questions personally, one-on-one, face-to-face or in a room full of people, I find that that is worth the toll that it takes hmm. um, because you're going to see change. When I was in college, uh, there was a, a guy who asked me, We had this. I went to a small liberal arts college in, in Rochester Hills, and there were a few people who lived on campus, not many, mm-hmm. um, but Those of us who lived on campus became our own little community. And there was a lunchroom, of course, because they had to feed the kids. (laughs) And, uh, uh, there was an area where the athletes sat together, right? And the athletes would be very, very, very loud. My friends felt like I was a safe black guy to ask the question, Hey, Calvin, why are the athletes so loud? The athletes was code for black people. Right. We're talking about the basketball players, right? right? Mm -hmm. Um, and my response was, they're loud to you because you're not part of their conversation. Yeah. Because if you went over to their side and you sat and you looked at all of us over here, we're being just as loud as they are, but you're not part of their conversation. So you've been conditioned when black people are loud to think they're being loud, whereas you come from your big fat Greek family
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and you're just as loud and you come from your big fat Chaldean family and you're just as loud and you come from your big fat Irish family and you're just as loud. Mm -hmm. But you've been conditioned to think that they are and you're not. So, those kinds of things I think are so, so yeah. So, my friend hears people being loud, but it's because he's not part of that conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel the work that I've committed myself to is worth being able to help someone better understand the world right. and other people. You can move better through the world if you understand people better. And so, wow, I think that that is that's worth it to me. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I will tell you this. I know that not everybody is geared towards that. Right. Uh I do still somewhat take a little bit of issue when people say, I'm not going to do the emotional labor for you. You got to do it yourself. Uh, Primarily because a lot of people don't know where to start. You could tell someone to Google something. That's fine. Mm. You can Google and then your attention span go off. Now you got cat videos that you're looking at and you were looking up racism, right? Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I think that there is something that People do need to take it upon themselves to do a bit more of the emotional labor and not assume that everybody is coming from a place of hostility. And I think that's where people get tired. Is like, hey, you know what? Right. You're coming to me with these questions, but you're not being honest with your questions. You're really just trying to get me to answer so that you can trap me, and then you're going to give back your ready-made response, right? Right. And I think that's what a lot of people feel is coming. Yeah. But I feel when you're actually face to face online, that's almost always what's happening. Absolutely. But when you're talking with people face to face, more often than not, I do not feel like that is that is the case. Yeah. Uh, people act like we're in this ethics class, mm-hmm. and they, they you do that in ethics class. So so let's say. <laughs> that, right. that you know, you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler. Would you do it, right? I'm like, what? No, I'm not gonna kill a baby. But so you're saying you let him live and he'd kill six million people. We don't live in an ethics class, okay? Right? We live in the real world. <laughs> right? Those questions fly there. But if you're gonna have honest if you're asking me questions, ask them honestly. Otherwise, mm. just say what you're gonna say anyway. And then be on your way. Tell yeah. me what you believe and then be on your way. But if you have honest yeah. questions, I am taking it upon myself to say, hey, Tim, first off, thank you for trusting me. Right? Thank you for asking me because you feel like I have some experience with this. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't feel like I'm their token black friend because there were enough black friends they had. Right. But you felt like I was a person who was it was safe enough to ask this question. Mm-hmm. So I don't speak for all black people. But here's my experience with this. Oh, wow. I never thought about it that way. That is probably the best response I've gotten from people. I never. Ever thought about it that way?
0: That's awesome. Yeah,
1: it's like, oh, well, more often than not. You probably haven't thought about it at all. But I'm, I'm going to let that go. But <laughs> yet, you never thought about it that way. Well, now you got a new way to think about right. things. You have new lenses to see through. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the same as a person taking the eye, you know, the, the seeing eye exam. And they can't make out all the letters at the bottom. And then, you know, the doctor gives them new glasses and they can make out everything from the top all the way down to the bottom. Right. And so I think that's a lot of why I'm OK with taking on the emotional labor. Uh, There are days where it takes its toll. There are days where I'm like, OK, I need a couple days off where I just need to go go-karting or I just need to play a video game for, you know, a few hours or something like that mm-hmm. to just take my mind off of that shitty conversation that I had. Because sometimes they do go south. Oh, yeah. Um, but people waking up and seeing things that they otherwise, it was designed for them not to see. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a win. I think that's always a win. Yeah. Um. Even if someone ultimately doesn't do anything, right? Because a lot of people are like, I, I want to do the right thing. I just don't know how. It's just overwhelming. I've never dealt with this before. But at least you're more aware. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is key uh, to emotional labor. I think it's necessary. I think more people should take it upon themselves. But I do think that... What will make me happiest is if the scales fell off someone's eyes. If they had new glasses to see through, uh, new lenses to see things through. Uh, if they did do kind of like what you're doing, like mm-hmm. how can how can I be a voice? How can I be an ally? How can I not just be aware? How can I not just put on my woke T-shirt? Right. How can I actually be the change that I want to see in this world? As I think Gandhi said something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you actually actively participate in being an ally in this world mm-hmm. rather than just being like, yeah, racism is a thing, white supremacy is a thing, yeah. and here's a cat video. Right. You know, how do, how do you actually become a part of the change?
0: Right. Totally off subject. Mm-hmm. On my Facebook page, you'll notice I have the uh, picture of the cat. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. It's um, Banksy's picture of a cat in the middle of Gaza. So it's just war and destruction around. Mm. But there's a cat. And he said, nobody's going to pay attention to Gaza until I put a cat up here. Mm. And sure enough. And that's just like, I don't think I'll ever move it. It's so you know profound that's great. to me. So you're saying you appreciate when people do the emotional labor. Yes, And so the question that I have, because as a white woman, I feel like it's my job, in a sense, to take on emotional labor so that my friends of color don't have to step into that. And I have learned that, you know, initially I kind of thought, no. Nobody should have to step into these situations. And then I've gotten to know a variety of different activists, and some activists are like, I'm on it and I'm in it and I'm doing my thing and I'm also focusing on self care. And it's not something, it's just something they're built for. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like for you, you are an anti racism activist. Yeah. yeah Would I'm, you say that?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of built for it. I, I, I think, yeah, you shouldn't have to step in front of a, a black person no. you know, to, to do it. Right. Um, but I think. When when thinking about this work I think of it the same way that Bono thinks about the Red campaign. Like mm, I could ask you to give $10 to AIDS research you're not going to, but if I give you this cool red iPhone, I know you'll feel good about what you've done and you yep. you know I mean you should just give the money, but you're not going to do that and I know you're not going to do that. So I painted this red and charged you $10 more mm-hmm. than it's actually worth. Now you're giving you feel good about yourself. Fine, go feel good about yourself. Thankfully, there's money towards AIDS research now. So I think he understood how people are and made a business decision based off of that. So when it comes to uh, anti-racism activism, I think that understanding just the way the world works, I shouldn't have to get a white person to say for me what I'm saying. Just mm-hmm. like a woman in a boardroom shouldn't say something brilliant and then people go, "Ah, eh, no, and then a guy says the exact same thing. People are like, Chad, that's a great idea, right? right? I'm gonna keep going back to Chad. <laughs> <laughs> it, it shouldn't be that way. Right. But the fact of the matter is, it is that way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the fact of the matter is, and more often than not, white people who are not ready to have conversations about racism are going to respond better to a face that looks like them
2: Mm-hmm.
1: telling them, hey, white supremacy is a thing and we need, mm-hmm. we need to get our people. The problem is you're going to step into that space. I think I said this to you the other day on, on, on Facebook. By doing that, by understanding how the world works, it is still an extension of white supremacy.
0: Exactly. It
1: is still an extension of, of white supremacy that I will only accept mm-hmm. from people that look like me because people who look like me are people who can be trusted. Mm -hmm. And so you were stepping into that system to disrupt the system, but you're kind of using the system against itself, right? but you're still using the system nonetheless, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's just kind of this weird, difficult dance that needs to be done primarily because white supremacy needs to be dismantled. It absolutely needs to be dismantled. And unfortunately, it is so codified within our system. It is so strong. It is so invisible that the only people capable of chipping away at it are not people who look like me. It is people who look like you, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, uh, I think that, yeah, it's, you're gonna take on some of the emotional labor there, uh, and I appreciate people who do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're you're gaming you're gaming the system. <laughs> in, sure, in a way. and
0: and I mean, this is something that I struggle with a lot because the thing that I want to do is I want to use my voice in spaces where voices of color aren't ever going to access because maybe the people don't live in an area where they encounter people of other races or they're not going to be online. It tends to be a lot of times older people who just aren't very savvy on the Internet and they're not going to follow an activist and they're not going to get into those circles and they're not going to study history. So doing that, but then also struggling with this idea that am I continuing to uphold white supremacy in that, you know, and just in dealing with that dance, like you said, and figuring out, well, how do I do this? And one of the things that I would say is for me Something that's important, though, is white people who are listening to this, who are like, I know there's an issue and I want to do something. A lot of times they make the mistake of skipping a lot of steps. They skip learning. They skip their own internal deconstruction. They skip really getting into why. What created this? How how are we where we are today? And then what it turns into a lot of times are, like you were saying, these forums where people are calling people racist and they're bashing people. And a lot of times I see white people People saying, if you are this, I will unfriend you. I will not associate with you, you know, and they can pat themselves on the back like they've done something good. And I'm sitting there like screaming silently like, no, 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 no. If you are a person who holds knowledge, then it's your job to stay in that so that you can speak truth to that. Yeah. That's just kind of where I'm at on that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's correct. I do think that we also have a – and this has nothing to do with race. It's just a general – move into postmodern thought, it's hard to have these conversations when you're talking about, you're talking about concrete realities. People. Right, like this is a this is a picture of a woman being sprayed with a water hose, right? Uh-huh. Uh, pressed against a building. Here is a person having a milkshake poured at their head for sitting down at a at a, at a counter to eat. Uh, these are things uh, that happen. This is real. But you have people who dismiss facts at this point, and you have people who do this on both sides of the aisle. If we're talking politically, yeah, sure. Um, if something is inconvenient or makes them uncomfortable, doesn't matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, uh, Christian, atheist, Muslim, Buddhist. It doesn't matter uh people will generally retreat into their echo chambers of belief. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see a denial of of facts that I think 30, 40 years ago, you understood, you understood that you were denying reality to make yourself comfortable. hmm Now you have people who are questioning the very nature of reality, which Mm -hmm. makes it, I think, harder to have these conversations. This is more a philosophical uh, thing that I'm noticing, uh, which comes from my religious and and philosophical background. But it's harder to have conversations uh, because if we go back to the uh, beginning of this conversation, you said, let's define Let's define white supremacy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And you have people now squabbling over what does it mean to define something. Right? Well, wait, what? Right? Like we're trying to have a conversation about white supremacy. Yeah, but you can't have that conversation until you define what definition is. I'm like, right. wait, that you're just you're just you're being ridiculous now. Like a- anything to keep from having the conversation. But it does come from a, a very real philosophical root of postmodern thinking, and so. I wonder if that does, in some ways, trip us up, mm-hmm. uh, and then also the lack of a shared a shared religious narrative mm-hmm. that I think undergirded the civil rights movement of of the nineteen sixties. It's like mm-hmm. mm, pre pre what would Jesus do? But if if America ever considered itself a Christian nation in its in its national psyche, it, it never has been. But mm-hmm. if there ever were a time, uh, I would say it was probably between. Uh, the 1940s mm-hmm. and 1960s, mm. right? Um, very staunch time that you could, you could look at that. And so you have someone like a Martin Luther King who was a pastor right. in a time where pastors are revered. Now pastors are generally seen as pedophiles, right? Um, but yeah. pastors were revered, police officers, you had your neighborhood beats, now, police could do some terrible things, but they were still – that was like something you wanted to aspire to be was a police officer. Mm-hmm. There was a time when you had this idea that, OK, we're we're a religious nation mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. And so I think that that was one of those things that the civil rights movement was able to tap into. It's like, hey, uh, here's a minister. His name is Dr. Martin Luther King. And then you got Minister Malcolm X. You might disagree with uh, his religious belief, but he's still a minister, Right. Uh, and they come along and they say, hey, this is wrong. Well, he's a minister and I'm a Christian and he says that's wrong. Uh, but, you know, white supremacy, you know. And then he shows you videos mm-hmm. like, hmm, would Jesus sick dogs on people? And that was a time when people were just getting into cameras I'm like, oh, my right. God, I, I can't not see this now. And he's appealing to my religious belief. This is a problem. And now I don't think we have that shared belief. Mm-hmm about ourselves, uh, and we can go round and round about the value of religion or the, the terrible things that religion has done. I don't want to have that conversation necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it played a bigger role in the civil rights movement in those conversations uh, of old that are somewhat lacking today, which does make the conversation, it doesn't make the conversation any less important today. Mm -hmm. But it makes it, I think people need to own that conversations around race are quite a bit more difficult without a shared religious narrative undergirding the people that we're messaging.
0: So I have two thoughts. One is, It's interesting because one of the great things about King, among many, is that he knew how to gather media, get attention, and get it into televisions and homes across the United Mm -hmm. States. That was such an integral part of the civil rights movement, really gaining Mm -hmm. steam, right? That
1: was actually the the official – pretty much the official stance of the NAACP yeah. was how many eyes can we get on this? Yes. There's a lot of issues, but which ones are we going to bring the cameras to? Right. To prick the, the American conscience.
0: Well, and I think about this right now because we see some shifting and there's a larger conversation taking place. And I look at social media and that platform and the way that it's being used and the way that people are just pulling out their camera phones and they're taking videos now of, think of the woman who was doing the photo shoot for her year old daughter in the neighborhood mm-hmm. and this white woman comes and harasses them and all of that. Yep. And now we get to see that. And so time after time after time now, we're getting to see videos of people being assaulted, people being harassed, having the police called on them. So I almost feel like there is this resurgence in a sense in using uh, visual media to to gather people.
1: There, There is, um, but it's I think because it's not novel anymore. Mm-hmm. I think because everybody has a camera. I mean, black people for years, I mean, Dave Chappelle's of this. Um, black people knew for years that cops were beating up people. Right. And it wasn't until you had the cameras on Rodney King in L.A. Mm-hmm. that he joked, he said, white people were like, hey, honey, did you see this? It's on the cover of Time magazine. Apparently the cops are beating black people like hotcakes. Right. Like, oh, okay. Well, we knew this is a reality. But now, it's it's interesting how this conversation has morphed. Because I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. Because for a while, it was, okay, we don't believe you. Okay, now there, there's cameras, you know, hoses, dogs. Okay, this is this is happening. We can't deny that. All right, well, so then, you don't have twenty four seven news at this time. Hey, there was a time when television went off. You remember that? Like, oh yeah, TV was over at like midnight. Right. Um. But now you got twenty four hour news We're aging cycle. We're
0: ourselves here, right? <laughs> it's
1: fine. Uh, but. I'm a historian. I don't care. (laughs) Uh, So I I remember having the big camcorder when I was a a kid. You didn't just walk around with a camera. So you just had you had to be at the right place at the right time to catch something. You had to have your camera. You had to have tape. You had to have all those things. And now we have these handheld devices where everybody has a cell phone and you have 24 hour news cycles and you have online media, social media, where everybody's everybody's voice suddenly matters. Doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're a fucking idiot. Right. Your voice. (laughs) is just as strong like i don't understand people who who like announce to the world that they're leaving social media like like i am leaving i'm taking a social media sabbatical right i Wh- know who are you <laughs> right even even having my own podcast, I'm like, why does anybody even listen to me? Uh, but But when it comes to what we have now, we've moved into this era where everybody is an expert commentator mm. on things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you have a video of a cop running after someone. The person is clearly running from the cop. The cop shoots them in the back. And then we see the cop planting evidence. Now, this is one of the few cases where the cop got prison time. One of the very few cases. But there's still commentary asking, well, why was the guy running? Oh, sure. The cop wouldn't have shot him in the back. Mm -hmm. The cop wouldn't have violated his rights Mm -hmm. had he not been running from the police in the first place. Right. So everybody's got their commentary on things. So I don't know that the presence of video is doing anything to really change the narrative. Yeah. At all. Uh, I mean, you had a guy who kicked a woman in the face the other day on on a train, and they thankfully caught him because he was on video. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have plenty of police officers shooting unarmed black people. You had a cop who they just declared a mistrial. He shot a social worker who had his arms up and the kid had autism. And the cop was, you know, they declared a mistrial. He Mm -hmm. will he'll have nothing. Right. So we've got video so much video that is if you are a person of color, 100 percent deniable. But if you are a person who is unmelanated, Mm -hmm. it is 100% deniable or at least let's talk about it or wait till more details come out.
0: Oh, yes. I
1: want to wait till more details come out. And on occasion that happens. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I do think people rush to judgment, including myself, sure. with the whole um, the Washington D.C. thing, and the MAGA hat wearing kids, and the the yeah the Native American. G- yes. I-, I will admit, I'll I'll go on record and say, hey, I jumped to conclusions yep. on that as well. The longer video does show something different, mm-hmm. um, but I think. When you have something very, very clear, mm-hmm. like someone's been shot, someone's been killed, cop showed up, shot Tamir Rice within two seconds of opening his door, the kid had a toy gun. Mm. I grew up playing toy guns. Now like if I had a boy, I, I would not let my I would not let my kid have toy guns right. at all. Right. right. That that's a, it's like a white privilege now. Yeah. Like white kids can have them. Right. Black kids cannot. Uh so I do not I d I don't I don't know. I just I don't know that the presence of video has really helped to change the narrative.
0: Well, and I, I wouldn't necessarily argue it's changed the narrative. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if it will, over time, put white people in mass in a position where they can't continue to deny these things because they're seeing it more and more. I mean, you're always going to have your people there who are, well, were they running? Why were they running? And if they weren't, then that, you know, and, and that's that's white supremacy, right? Like, that's just that's the stuff that has to get rooted out and taken down. But I'm just curious if this prevalence of video now is going to help some people wake up a little bit or, you know, I'm I, just, I think some, I but I,
1: I think I think in mass, if, if I'm being honest and this is not just being this is not being pessimistic. This is just being realistic. Sure. Um, it's hard when you're doing this kind of work. You want to you want to be hopeful. I know. Right. Right. What I would say, one of the things about white supremacy is that it is it was designed to be adaptable. It can adapt to whatever container it is in. Right. Yeah. And so uh, you can I don't know if you've ever gone down the rabbit hole of a conversation with somebody o- online where you said one thing. And then they don't answer anything that you said, and they make it about something else. And then you take yeah. the bait, and you go. and Now you're like eighty plus comments in, right? And you're like, what were we even talking about? Right. <laughs> uh, I think I think white supremacy is a lot like that in yeah. that it moves the goalpost mm. all around. Mm. Like, yeah. oh, okay, wait, you definitely said something. Eh. White supremacy can literally say that makes sense, but what about? And they move the goalpost. So you, you got your classic what aboutism, right? right? I think you, somebody said that on your on your show at one point. Yeah. Um. So I think if you are relying on technology uh, you didn't put it this way but if, if you 're relying yeah. on the proliferation of technology to change the landscape of this conversation
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I think we're I think we're past past that yeah outside of there being technology that can go inside of someone's head and tell you what their intent was uh, I think that the work is going to remain more more difficult oh, than yeah. than I think people yeah. uh, people think. One of the easiest things that white supremacy does is deny things, mm. deny, 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 deflect, uh, deflect, deflect, yeah. deflect, and and so you can have a video of a cop shooting someone in the back, and someone's going to excuse it. This is why Donald Trump can say something like, "I could walk up to t- in, in what on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody in the face, and I'd still get the vote." Mm-hmm. Right? That is that ought to be the motto. Of white supremacy Mm. right and i'm not and i'm for for trump voters who are listening to this who who were on the fence until i just said something about trump and now you're like now no i i think that that is a statement that is born from white supremacy and the difficulty with talking about white supremacy is a lot of people who deny its existence or don't want to deal with it don't understand the nature of something being unconscious Right, they think it has to be crosses being burned. Right, you know the the sit-ins, people getting beat up. Mm-hmm. You know the dogs, the fire hoses, the cops beating Rodney King. Which, if if the cops beating Rodney King came out today, it would just be one of many many videos that people would excuse away. Mm. Uh, back then, you couldn't. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's a lot harder work than than people give it. And I'm not saying that you're not giving it credit. Um Yeah, think, you're
0: just saying don't rest on it. Sounds like you're saying yeah. don't rest on this idea that somehow, you know, these videos are going to yeah. wake people up. It's not right. Yeah, absolutely absolutely not. Not. for sure. So,
1: yeah. And I think in that sense, it's gonna be and this is where that emotional labor comes in. It's going to be very individual. And this is this is actually where I think if if you do want to be more hopeful, uh, this is where I think it will work for you to talk to people that look like you. Because I think overarching Individual interactions are always your best way of changing hearts and minds, period. Uh, But I do think that, generally speaking, when you're talking about race, white people think individually those were isolated incidences. You know, the lady calling the cops in the barbecue, that's isolated incident. The woman in the park, the the baby, the one-year-old birthday celebration, that's, you know, isolated incident. The pool— Isolated incident. Those are isolated incidents because we think as individuals. Right. So in that sense, I think the one on one conversations, small group conversations are going to be good because those people think like individuals. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside is you are trying to communicate to them an idea of a group dynamic for people who think that group dynamics don't really exist when it comes to. Right. Race. Right. So the good thing is talking to people one-on-one is what changes hearts and minds. The difficult part of that work is communicating the idea that he- here's something that benefits the group. Mm-hmm. I know we think of ourselves as individuals, but it was designed to benefit all of us. The definition, let's not get bogged down in the definition of what a definition is, but <laughs> the definition I've of had a those group, conversations. Yeah, the definition of a group is more than one person. Mm-hmm. And it benefits more than one person, and it's more than one person who look like all of us.
0: All right, so that wraps up the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our shows, subscribe, rate us, give us feedback, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We would love to have ideas for future shows, guests, and so on. Thanks.